Okay, got it. Ready? <clears throat> You're listening to Paul Elmore. Paul Elmore. <laughs> Shh. Often when I speak, I do a little debrief afterwards. I'm trying to evaluate, okay, did it, did it come across clearly? Did I, did I capture what I was hoping to capture? And when I left last week, I, I thought it was okay until um, my neighbor lady came over around Wednesday or Thursday of last week. And she, she knocks on our door and her, her mother, who was in her mid-80s, um, lived across the street from us, and her daughter, her name's Yolanda, um, would come over every day and just make sure mom's okay and they had caregivers living with her. But um, her mother passed away about a month and a half ago. And so they've been in the process of kind of cleaning out their house. Um, the caregivers who live there are in the process of moving out. And she came over, just a very nice neighbor, and she says, you know, we have some of these extra things. Could your family use some of them? Thank you very much. We've already got some of those. We, we don't need them. Go ahead and, um, you know, do with them as you will. And I asked her the question, um, what are you going to do with, you know, the furniture and stuff like that? Are you going to put it on Craigslist? And her instant reaction was, oh, no, absolutely not. Why? Any guesses? Uh, it's not I can't. I don't know how. That that's, could be one reason. Nope, not I'm bad at it. Dangerous. I've heard bad things happen. Craigslist freaks her out. And so in that one conversation, it's like, oh, shoot, there's the grid. There's the concept I just spent all last week trying to explain, and it was summed up in one easy conversation. So the banister effect is believing or believing is seeing and the grid. So here's what it looks like. So we have Craigslist, just the concept of Craigslist. Craigslist can fall into two boxes. Actually, we'll make it three boxes because that's actually what I forgot I did. Okay, Craigslist, <laughs> three boxes. Craigslist can be sketchy. How many of you would put Craigslist into sketchy, okay? Very good. I've got it framed in my office a really beautiful counterfeit $20 bill that someone paid me off of Craigslist for. It's fantastic, it's great. It's well worth the story, 20 bucks. Sketchy, okay? Little nice, little, little old lady, very nice. I carried the thing out to her car and put it in the car and she still stiffed me. Sketchy. Um, thrifty, man, how many go Craigslist is awesome? Yeah, okay, that's your grid, no problem. You can get deals all over the place with, with Craigslist. Or, what, what else would you label Craigslist as? What's your grid when it comes to Craigslist? Uh, it can be whimsical. Whimsical? Yeah, people use it as a form. As a form, depending upon which section you actually click. Yeah. That, yeah, you get a very different results depending upon what you... Go out to Troutdale to get a half a bag of yeah. diapers. So explain that to me. I can't explain that to you. It's Craigslist. It's its own society. Yes. Yeah. Well, Anyone else? Just what's your grid for Craigslist? Anything that just if, resourceful, okay? Responsible even. You have to move against power. You have to move. Hassle. <laughs> Pain in the butt. Yep. Buying things you don't need. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's an enabling thing. It's a, an addiction. Sure, fair enough. I can really dump some good junk that way. You can really get rid of some good junk by the people who are addicted to it and just want to show up and <laughs> haul your stuff away. Remember that first question at the very first night about um, 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 dysfunctions kind of working well with each other? You guys should talk afterwards, okay? <laughs> It'll just save all sorts of hassle. So that's Craigslist. That's just one topic. What if I were to throw this word up there? Monty Python. Let's just play with this really quick. Let's label your grid, okay? Some people, they do that. How many would, okay, there's a couple of hands on that. Many people, including myself, would do that. I just sometimes don't get it. Or how else would you label it? Snark. What? Snark. Snark. Okay. Joyfully silly. Joyfully silly. Very funny. Very funny. Genius even. Yeah. Bordering on canonical and you know yeah. scripture. An acquired taste, absolutely, like motor oil. Okay, Monty Python. How about this one? Justin Bieber. Okay, some of you might be into that, okay? Some of you might do, meh. Or we could put Craigslist back, oh yeah. Um, anyone else want to put different labels for Mr. Bieber? Child. What? Big thumbs down. He's a wannabe. Not worth listening. Not worth listening to. What was it? He's a wannabe. He's a wannabe. Okay, Justin Bieber. How about algebra? What's your grid? What's the first thing that shows up? Okay. We got one hand over there. Okay, two. Really? Man. Ben, we should start a support group, okay? This could be an entire, you could have Mending the Soul, you could have Genesis, and then you could have Algebra. That's, um, that could be, how many of that? Okay, we got a lot of head nods on that. That's me too. And again, anyone else want to just put their own label on it? Why? Why? Irrelevant? Absolutely. Okay, next. Church. Ooh. What do we do with that one, okay? Some people... Put it in helpful. Some people put it in harmful. Depends on your story. Some people, essential. Okay? Anyone else just want to put their box? Fulfilling. Free coffee. Very essential. Free coffee. Okay? Breakfast. You're not too far off the mark. My kids like going to church, depending upon the type of candy they're giving away in the class <laughs> in middle school, or donuts. It's like, nice. really? Killing me. Church. How about, hey, yelling at me. Man, sorry. Yo. Go for it. We'll say it again. Recovery. Absolutely. The church can be an incredibly helpful, incredibly therapeutic, incredibly redemptive space. How about money? Helpful. Okay? Some people look at that. Money, just as an opportunity. Dangerous. Dangerous. Frustration. Or, again, what does your grid say? Just what, what's the instant reaction? What's the response to that? Dangerous. 
Wish I had more? Yeah. Say it again. A tool. Yes. Something, it's a utility that makes you get what you want to get. How about job? J-O-B. That's not, that's not Job. That's not the book of the Bible. Job. How about fulfilling? Yes? How about drudgery? Okay, lots of hands on that one. Or, again, what is your grid? What, how do you define this? Because this is going to affect your perspective on how you wake up in the morning. All of these things. And, and we, could, we could pull all these things apart and say this is, this is going to be the grid that we have our, our world through. A couple more real fast. Asking for help. This one, give me just a second, okay? Asking for help. Some people go, that's productive. No problem. Some people go, I'm just going to be a burden if I ask for help, which now changes how you interact with people. Makes you vulnerable. Yes. That's, that's a good one for the last box. Anyone else asking for help? It's the first thing that shows up in your grid. Embarrassing. Embarrassing. Yeah. Embarrassing. Helpful. Helpful. Makes you feel vulnerable. Shameful, even. Scary. Scary. Okay, that one actually stirs up a lot of stuff. How about just a couple more here? Um, dating. We already have feelings going through. Here we go. Dating. Enjoyable? Impossible. Or we got scary over here. What else? For those that missed it, he said expensive. Expensive. Yes. Let's close in prayer. Thanks for coming. Um, anyone else just want to put some words to dating? Craigslist. This is going downhill fast. Holy smokes. Oh my goodness. I'm just jumping off of it. Ask is going to be the smartest thing. Uh-oh. Sex. Sex. Okay? Remember you're in a church. It's business time. Okay. Essential. That's just an essential part of my life. That's how I, I gauge my happiness. Shameful. In my occupation, I hear that a lot. Or... Again, how do you view sex? What's your grid when it comes to how you interpret the sexual component of your, your humanity? Forbidden. Missing. Missing. Forbidden. Enjoyable. Enjoyable. Lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. A um, couple more. Four-minute mile. This is how we got the name Bannister Effect. And everyone's going, huh? Four-minute mile. Okay. Impossible, thank you very much. See, there's someone. For some of you, for some of those who are runners, okay, that's actually a goal. I want to see if I can do that. I want to make the four-minute mile. Or, healthy. some of you, healthy. healthy. I would say it's very, very 
very hard to get there. Yep. Somebody else's goal? Else's goal? <laughs> Absolutely. Not, not very interested in it at all. Not, yeah, absolutely. How about, anyone want to give it a try? Speed, nope. And, and, and okay, you're actually bouncing, the. you actually want to give this a try. Okay, you want to give it a shot? Say it. You what? He thinks that's an ingredient in shampoo, okay? Well, just so you know, anything's online, you can look up, this is a YouTube video. Apparently, hello, there's no sound apparently up there. If you could hear this, there's a lady actually pronouncing methylisothiazolinone. Thank you, okay? <laughs> Showing off, I can just say the word, okay? Methylchloroisothiazolinone. Or is it in shampoo? Holy cow. That guy right there, apparently his grid says this word means shampoo. <laughs> Thank you for making my night. That, I couldn't have planned that. I promise. I didn't give him that heads up. But apparently he knows that's in shampoo. Or, again, just don't really care, right? I don't need to know that word. Absolutely, that's, it's, it's, I don't know what it does, but apparently it's in shampoo. But here's what I want you to pay attention. With this word right here, where does it fall on your grid in regards to how important is it to you? How many of you are going, eh, it's not that big a deal? Okay, lots and lots of people. That's what I did, okay? I just happened to read it on the back of my shampoo bottle. It's like, very, very interesting. Here's what happens, here's what happens with the banister effect. Let's see first, okay. Chelsea? Hi Chelsea. That should be playing, let's see what happens now. It's gonna be a fun night, technologically, I can already tell. Okay, impossible. Let's try this again, hit the buttons. <laughs> We're going to get to the end of the series and talk about that. All right, well, apparently we don't want to see Roger Bannister. That's Roger Bannister running the four-minute mile. That's him. It's, it's a four-and-a-half-minute video, and that's him actually breaking the world record as he goes round and round. What's actually fascinating about how, when he broke the world's record, because he's narrating it as an old man. He's watching this, and he's narrating how it plays through. He actually gives more credit, not to himself, but to his team, because he's running. Yeah, we're going to skip that. That's just not going to work. Okay. We'll just play it. He, he credits not only himself, but his whole team in being able to break the four-minute mile, because he had to pace off of the first guy. And as he got out of the starting blocks, he's actually yelling at the guy in front of him, go faster, go faster, go faster. And the guy wouldn't go faster. And 
he kept that pace up. And after the second lap around, another guy started the pace. And he's kind of pushing him, going, come on, come on, I want to I beat this thing. And they wouldn't let him go faster. They would, they're holding him back, and he's getting a little frustrated with it. But afterwards, he goes, if it wasn't for them, I would have pushed myself too far too fast, and he wouldn't have actually been able to break the four-minute mile because he would have been out of gas. He just would have run out of energy. So him breaking the four-minute mile, which had never been done before on record, changed changed everything, but it wasn't just one person experience. It was everyone's experience that actually made that happen. And it's really nice because he gives credit um, to all of that, to his whole team. Roger Bannister. Who were the people in front of him? Who are the people? I don't know their names. Yes, they're part of his running team. He, he was on a, a, a cross country or just, I don't know, a running team. So there were other, other guys that he ran with, with every day. But Here's, here's why we're watching Roger Bannister. Here's why we're talking about methylthylazone and nonanone kind of stuff. Because when you don't have a box for something, when you don't know what to do with it, we typically file it into one major box. Okay? Anyone know what that box is? If you don't have a box for a piece of information like shampoo, if you don't have that shampoo box, do you know what box it goes into? Garbage box, what? Trash box? Not quite. What box? That might be a clue. There you go. It goes into the impossible box. It goes into the, I don't have a place for this, I don't, I don't know what to do with this information, and so I, I can't actually move through it. I don't know what to do with it, and I'm not going to try to do anything with it. And we instantaneously limit ourselves by the belief system. If we don't have a box, we don't have a place to hang this on our grid, it def by default goes into the, I'm not, probably not going to be able to do anything with this at all. So, how many of you, knowing your life purpose, for some of you, you're going, I, I don't have a box to hang that in. I don't know how to find that. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that feels like. And so it feels impossible for me to figure that out. I want to. There's a strong desire. There's a strong ache to be able to go, i got to figure out what I'm all about. i got to know why I'm doing what I'm doing. But that desire still isn't enough. Desire doesn't, doesn't build the grid. Okay? Experience builds your grid. Somehow... This guy in the back, his grid incorporated that word into shampoo, and he had a place to hang that, okay? If, if some of you don't have a box for your life purpose, because life's been about survival. Life's been about just trying to keep your head above water and figuring out your purpose. That's not even up there. Getting a better job. Some of you go, I have no idea how to do that. I want one, but I don't have any idea. And so it feels impossible. And so I'm just going to have to tolerate. I'm going to be stuck in the job that I'm running right now. A fulfilling marriage. Some of you go, relationships, I don't get it, I don't buy it, I just I have no idea what it looks like, I've never had that modeled, and having a fulfilling marriage feels impossible. Feeling normal and content. Just waking up and going, I always feel like the odd person. I don't fit in anywhere, I don't know what to do. I don't know who's going to want me. I feel broken or damaged in some way. And I don't know how to change that. I feel stuck in my identity. 
financial success and comfort. Some of you go, I'm just convinced that I will never make more than minimum wage, if that. And making more than that, I'm not even allowed to think about that. I'm just, just it's never going to happen. More impossible stuff. Owning a Porsche 911. <laughs> Some of you would go, I would love to drive a Porsche 911, but it's just uh, never going to happen for me. Even though, you know, it would be really nice. To, I'd like to drive a Porsche 911. I'd like to have a Porsche 911. Children and grandchildren. Some of you trying for kids may never happen. Some of you have children, but that relationship has been broken in some way and you have no idea how to restore it. You don't know what box to put that in and so it feels impossible to have that relationship get better. Or your kids have children and you have no relationship with your grandchildren and you're heartbroken because of that and it feels impossible because you have no idea how to fix that relationship. You feel stuck in that. Being self-employed, again, I, I don't like my job. I'd like to work for myself. I got an idea, but I'm terrified to try it. Don't think I'll ever do it. Waking up without pain. Some of you have physical pain from injuries, from all sorts of reasons, and you're just going, I don't actually have any idea what it was like to wake up and not feel pain. It's just impossible. I don't think I'll ever change. Waking up without anxiety. I hear that one a lot just first thing in the morning, and your heart starts going, and it's like, okay, I'm, I'm afraid, I don't know why I'm afraid, and I don't know how to fix it, I feel stuck in this, and I feel like I'm going to be this way forever, and that anxiety just stays there over and over, or the opposite of anxiety, that depressed state, that overwhelming sadness, that it's never going to feel better, it's never going to feel happy, and I don't know how to get out of it. I, I, I'm, I'm trying, I want to be better, but when I think about it, I, just, I, have no, I, I have no box to pull a solution out of. Or I read this book, and they're telling me to do this thing, or I sit with this counselor, and he tells me to try this thing, and I nod my head, and it's like, okay, I hear what you're saying, but when I actually am supposed to try it, I, I, don't, know, I don't know what to do with that because it feels impossible because I've never, ever, ever had the capacity to change. And so you feel stuck again. Does that make sense when you don't have a box? When you're missing, when you're missing a way to organize your information, it automatically goes into the, I don't know what to do, and I'm going to be stuck. Is that everyone tracking so far? Is that making sense? Questions at all before we kind of move on? Yes? Can you have 10 and 11? Can you wake up with anxiety and be depressed? Yeah. Absolutely. Which is one of the very odd, um, counterintuitive things about this world. You can actually have so much anxiety, you're depressed. You can have, I, I sat with someone and they came in and said, I'm really depressed because I have depression. And, and just the fact that because they were depressed kind of left them in this spiral. They kept going down and down. But yeah, anxiety... Again, if we were to take 30 seconds on it, anxiety is actually a, a heightened bodily sensations, okay? Your, 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 your um, sympathetic nervous system is just actually activated a little bit more, so your heart's going a little bit hard, you got more tension, you got respiratory stuff happening, and your body, you don't know why, but it's in this kind of activated state, and you can still be incredibly discouraged or sad 
or, um, yeah, wrestling with depression all at the same time. And when you tell people that, they go, huh? I don't get it. It's like weird. But it's absolutely true. Here's one of the, here's one of the things that's absolutely essential about, again, why we get stuck. When things feel impossible, when we put them into that box, we devote less productive effort to achieving them. So, I want a better job, but I have no idea how to do it. It feels impossible, and so I devote less productive effort to achieving a better job, to actually trying to get a better job. Because I'm just convinced if I go and I apply for a job, what's the answer I'm going to get? You're not qualified. We don't want you. You're not good enough. And so why even apply? You start, to, you start to shut yourself or limit yourself down. Now, I have the word productive underlined because actually what happens is a people devote tons and tons and tons of energy into, into achieving, negatively achieving their goals when it feels impossible. They beat themselves up. They watch lots of self-help stuff. They read lots of stuff, but they very rarely put into practice trying something. They actually go towards a cerebral head portion, which says, if I gain more information about this, if I study harder, if I understand it differently, then I'm going to somehow change. Now, again, understanding and having a, a cognitive foundation is absolutely essential, but it will still never get you a better job unless you go and you fill out the application. Does that make sense? Yes. Is that kind of a trigger for self-destructive behavior patterns? How do you mean? Well, in a sense, like uh, when you get that way, you want to go out and have a drink or yes. join or do some sort of thing like that, you know? Yep. Self-medicate. Self-medicate. And to me, that's self-destructive behavior patterns. Absolutely, because when you get triggered and you're going, I, I, I want to change, but I know that I can't, that's actually shame kicks in, and you're going, I'm a failure. Not my behavior is a failure, but I'm a failure. And a person who's a failure, a person who's just screwed up, might as well go do something to prove how screwed up they are. Right? And so you end up doing some confirmation bias. Yes, sir? I have a question about anxiety. Okay. Why is it that sometimes when something is potentially good or might be good information, it can trigger anxiety? Yes, why is something that is good potentially triggering for anxiety? <sighs> what would be the best way to kind of explain that? Um, Disneyland. Disneyland. I love going to Disneyland. I grew up in Southern California. I've been to Disneyland since I was, you know, yay high. And I know Disneyland. It's, it's a blast. It's fun. As an adult parent with four kids, when we talk about going to Disneyland, do you think it means something different? I, people who have kids here are nodding their head, because if I'm taking four kids to Disneyland, what happens? Chaos, four different directions. Got to make sure, just the financial expense of that right there, you know, I've got to take a second mortgage on my house. So something that can be good often has a secondary um, trigger behind it. So I got a new job. That's going to be great. I can't do that. But what if I don't make friends at my new job? What's going to happen there? That might be terrifying. And so you actually start projecting, you start projecting um, uh, 
issues or, or circumstances that, that can potentially be um, uncomfortable and scary. And so you tend not to be reacting to the new job because you're going new job, better money, better hours, all those things. But it, life isn't black and white. It isn't just all good. There's always a potential for something else. And so typically we react to those, to those what ifs or those, those secondary issues. Um, as well as, and I've seen this happen a lot, um, you might not be aware of the secondary issues, and you're just going, man, this new job is great, but change, just anything different, has the unknown connection to it, and fear of the unknown is probably one of the most prevalent, one of the most um, significant kind of anxiety-developing um, emotions or situations that create that emotion um, because we like to be able to predict, we like to be able to know what's going to happen. Does that make sense? Perfect. Yes, sir. Who said that? I did. Well, I know, but it's up there in quotation marks. Oh, who said that? I did. No joke. I wrote that. Um, to get unstuck. To be able to say, all right, I don't have this grid, and I need to be able to get out of this impossible box. You have to be able to create new boxes. And so it's like, well, what box do I need to build? Okay, Do I just build um, butterflies and unicorns over here, and everything's going to turn out OK? That might not you know, help you get that new job or that Porsche. Um, so here is a list of some boxes which I think are universal enough where if you can start to interpret unknown situations, things that feel impossible to you, but you can start to hang them or put them into these boxes, you'll actually start to view them differently. And when you view them differently, new emotions will be connected to that and you'll actually, you actually will feel like there is possibility of improving and getting better. Wouldn't that be nice? So the first box. See, it's a box. I'm allowed to dream of better things. Right there, that is probably one of the biggest limitations of all. I admit that I want, insert thing here. I want a better job. I want a more fulfilling relationship. I want a better sex life. I want to have a better relationship at church. Whatever that is. A lot of times, a lot of times, people have not allowed themselves to dream. Their rational, limiting brain kicks in, which says, if you actually start to dream, if you actually start to, to hope, if you actually start to want or desire something, you are no longer being rational. You're no longer being responsible. Because good, responsible people keep their, keep their head down, keep their feet on the ground, and you, you just deal with what's in front of you. And so you're not even allowed to conceive or to dream about something better. Now here's what's ironic about this. Every single one of us already do it. We already dream. We already tell a future story. But so often we're telling a negative story. We're already future tripping, but it's skewed towards the negative. We go... I'm never going to get that job because there's always going to be someone else more, more employable, more desirable than I am. You're, you're dreaming. You're talking about the future. You're planning for it. 
but it's in a negative connotation. It's skewed towards the negative. I can't make more money. There's just no way I can make more money. Well, maybe not. Maybe you can actually get a better job. Maybe you can do something. Maybe you can sell something on Craigslist if it's not too sketchy for you, okay? You can generate money somehow. Do you see how everyone always tends to future trip already? You already start to dream, but you're, you're telling, well, the way I phrase it is, you're already telling a story, but you're telling a tragedy. It's like you're writing this story. You're, you're the author of a book series, but you can't, and, and you are the main character in this book, but you keep writing tragedies. Write a comedy. Write a love story. Write an adventure. You're allowed to dream. You're allowed to try more. The next box. I can learn how to make, insert dream here, happen. Most people get hung up on the how. This is what keeps people stuck over and over and over again. They go, I really want this, but I don't know how I'm going to make it happen. Because I don't know the how, I'm not allowed to dream. I have to know the how. I have to know the exact method. I have to have the 3, 6, 9, 42 steps to get from point A to point B. And once I have all those steps lined out, then I'm going to give myself permission to dream. Then I'm going to give myself permission to want something. And that is never, that is never how it happens. I might want to take a vacation in Hawaii. Am I allowed to say, I would like a vacation in Hawaii? Does that make me a bad person? Okay, I've never been to Hawaii. It looks kind of nice. I've looked at the brochures and all the places on the internet. It looks very nice. If I were to say, you know what, I'm not actually allowed to want to go to Hawaii because I don't know if I'm going to get there by plane. I don't know if I'm going to get there by boat. I don't know how I'm going to generate the money. I don't know who's going to watch my kids. I don't know if I'm going to walk there or drive there. Um, and so until I figure out how I'm going to get there, I'm not even allowed to look. I'm not even allowed to dream. If we don't have the how, we limit ourselves. And so what I want to ask you to try is mixing the first box and the second box is go, I have no idea how this is going to happen. I have no idea how I'm going to get a better job. I have no idea how I'm going to improve my relationship with my spouse. But I'll tell you, I would like a better relationship. And I'd like it to look like this and have these things in it. Or I'd like my job to have these hours at this place with this kind of boss. I have no idea how it's going to happen. But I'm absolutely going to dream. And what I actually ask my clients to do a lot is not just think it up here. Because once it's up here, it, it, it actually gets a little gummy and a little sticky. I ask them to actually write it down. Give me a long description. How do you want this to look? Make it real. Make it vibrant. I don't know how. And they'll come in and go, here's what I, is it okay? If, can, can I, I really think I want this. Is it okay? Please? Yes. And actually, I have to, I have to help my clients actually flesh it out even more because they'll come in, you know, three points. I want a better job. I want more money. And I want better hours. And that's all they'll say. Okay? What kind of job? What do you want to be doing? Where do you want it to be? What kind of boss do you want? What... Um, what kind of benefits package, what, what, and just flesh it out. And you can see them going, I'm, I'm allowed to do that? Really? Really? Okay. Don't worry about the how yet. What do you guys want? 
Think about it right now. We just put a huge list of stuff that um, feel impossible. Your, your impossible thing might not have been on that list. It might be something completely different. It might be coming, becoming sober. It might be, again, finding that person who's important to you. It could be a thousand different things. What is that thing that feels impossible? And then if you were to start dreaming, do you notice any resistance? Do you notice any, yeah, but that's scary. The other major resistance to that is if I dream about it and it doesn't happen, I'm going to be more disappointed. Does that sound familiar? If I allow myself to hope and it doesn't happen, then I'm going to just be massively disappointed. And so I'd, I would rather not be disappointed. And I'm just going to settle for what I have now. If I could grab you by the shoulders right now and just shake that out of you, that's what I would, that'd be my therapeutic technique. Okay? I'd like to, you have permission to try and fail and try again. Try, fail, try again. Next one, the next box, something that feels impossible. Instead of going into the, it'll never happen, I want it to go into what I'm feeling right now is not how I will feel forever. I call this the principle of the seasons. If coming out of August into September, October, November, December, it starts to get cold in Portland. Leaves start to fall, it gets gloomy, the rain shows up. And if you were convinced that it is never, ever going to turn into spring again, it's just never going to happen, how excited would you be for the end of this year? So okay, so one likes that. For most of us, that becomes death. It's just like overwhelming. And we forget, we forget that things never stay the same forever. And when you trust, okay, when you just know it's going to come spring, it's going to come summer again, then it's going to be 102 degrees here in Portland like normal, and it's just going to keep rolling through over and over, okay? What I'm feeling right now will not, I will not feel that way forever. It gives you permission to go, this sucks right now. This is actually just miserable. I hate this, what I'm feeling right now. Man, I'm glad this isn't going to last forever. I'm glad that I can change something. I'm glad that something can get different. I am glad that something better or worse, okay? I don't have the magic button that's going to make everything better all the time. It actually might get worse, but it will be different. And then you just have to deal with different problems at that time, okay? And that change, I call it choosing a different kind of hard. Sometimes it's hard to deal with the situation you're in right now, and you're afraid to take another course because that's a hard thing to do as well. But when you do something different, when you pick a different kind of hard, you actually stretch different muscles and it's almost relieving, it's almost refreshing to go, whew, okay, I'm not, having, I'm not stuck anymore in the old hard, I have a new kind of hard to deal with. It's a new puzzle, it's a new, new project. Yes? I'm really happy. Am I not gonna be stuck here forever? I mean, I like this feeling. Yes. Yes. Yep. Yes. I've got bad news. No, 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 you don't. No. I, I appreciate your optimism. I genuinely do. Um, unfortunately, I haven't. Okay. 
the rest of us, okay, we'll let that little bubble of silence be right around you guys for a second, okay? Even happy times, we have to come to the understanding that it's not going to last. They will shift, that new kind of hard. I love my wife with all of my heart, and I expect someday that either she will be or I will be on our deathbed. I'll either be holding her hand as she slips into eternity, or she'll be holding my hand. That's the nature of the frail, frailty of life. And I can't, I can't sustain happy forever. In fact, we're going to come back to that theme here in just a second. Um, but one more box. One more box. Um, my life is more than what's happening to me physically. This is probably one of the strongest boxes when things are happening, when things are difficult, when things feel impossible. We... Um, we tend to adopt the idea that this reality, what I'm experiencing physically right now, is what determines if I'm happy or sad. And I'm going to challenge that over and over and over and over again. The events in our life do not make us happy or sad. The perspective, the story we tell about those events determine our emotional reaction to them. We have that power and responsibility. My life is more than what's happening to me physically. I want to read you a story. It's one of my favorite stories in Scripture. It just, I, I've read it a dozen times, more than a dozen times, and it just cracks me up every time. This, this demonstrates to me how, how much God has a sense of humor. It's just fun. You know, this is out of... Um, Second Kings, this is the story of Elisha, one of the stories of Elisha. He did a lot. One time when the king of Aram was at war with Israel, after consulting with his officers, he said, so this is the king of Aram talking, at such and such place I want to, well, I want to set up an ambush for Israel. The holy man, or Elisha, sent a message to the king of Israel, hey, watch out when you're passing that place because Aram has set up an ambush there. So the king of Israel sent word concerning the place of which the holy man had warned him, and this kind of thing happened all the time. So basically, well, so the king of Aram was furious over all this. He called his officers together and said, tell me, who's leaking information to the king of Israel? Who's the spy in our ranks? This king who's trying to assault Israel can't get away with anything because someone is giving away information. One of his men said, no, 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 no. Dear king, it's not any of us. It's Elisha, the prophet in Israel. He tells the king of Israel everything you say, even what you whisper in your bedroom. How prophets, prophets worked in the Old Testament. Imagine that. That's just fascinating. The king said, all right, fine. Go and find out where he is. I'll send someone and capture him. The report came back. He's in Dothan. Then he dispatched horses and chariots, an impressive fighting force, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Early in the morning, a servant of Elisha got up and went out. Surprise! Horses and chariots surrounding the city. The young man exclaimed, Oh, master, what shall we do? Gets up in the morning, making coffee, looking out the kitchen window, and here is an army, horses and chariots, swords drawn, ready to butcher Elisha. Bummer of a job to be his servant right now. Elisha says, don't worry about it. There's more on our side 
than on their side. Imagine what the servant's thinking at that point. Elisha, have you looked out the window? You're crazy. Then Elisha prayed, O God, open his eyes and let him see. The eyes of the young man were opened and he saw the whole mountainside full of horses and chariots of fire were surrounding Elisha. Imagine that. I actually have prayed. I want five minutes with those eyeballs. I want to be able to see the stuff we can't normally see in this physical realm because there's more going on than what we are able to perceive. And I actually believe that Elisha, as a prophet of God, walked around that way all day long. He's able to see a, a, an augmented reality. He's able to see what's really happening. But it gets better. It gets better. When the Arameans attacked, Elisha prayed to God, strike these people blind, and God struck them blind, just as Elisha said. <laughs> then Elisha called out to them. So here's the guys, whole army ready to kill him. They're now blind, staggering around, have no idea where to go. So Elisha goes out and says, hey, can I help you? What are you looking for? Elisha called out to them, um, and said, hey, not that way, not this city. Follow me, and I'll lead you to the man you're looking for. So Elisha, the guy that they're, they're chasing after, is now leading them by hand, saying, you know what? I'll help you out. I'll show you where the guy is that you're looking for. And he leads them. It says, um, da, 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 uh, and he led them into Samaria. That is the city in Israel. That's the enemy city. So the whole Aramean army got led by one guy, while they're blind, into the inner walls of Samaria. As they entered the city, Elisha prayed. Again, this is, he's just mean sometimes. As they entered the city, Elisha prayed, Oh God, open their eyes so they can see where they are. God opened their eyes, they looked around, and they were trapped in Samaria. Whew. When the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, Father, Elisha, shall I massacre the lot? These guys are coming after you, dude. You want some vengeance? And he goes, not on your life. You didn't lift a hand to capture them, and now you're going to kill them? Uh-uh. Make a feast for them and send them back to their master. So he prepared a huge feast for them. After they ate and drank their fill, he dismissed them. Thanks for coming, guys. Here's a doggy bag. Have a good day. They returned home to their master. The raiding bands of Aram didn't bother Israel anymore. That's how the story ends. Can you imagine that? We believe that what we're experiencing right now is our only reality. And I want to challenge you to even consider the idea that there's a greater reality happening that you might not be aware of. And I recognize that that's a hard concept to understand. So here's, here's my question for you. Miracle or things that are supernatural. You just heard that story, and I know that there are many, many grids in this room right now. And some of you are going, really? You're going to pull a story out of the Bible? That's naive. That's just, why would you do that? Some of you are going, that's absolutely possible. I believe that. That's how my grid interprets things that are miraculous or things that are supernatural. Or you might put it into your own category again. How do you... How do you even filter the information I just gave you? I want you to notice if there's any resistance at all. You don't have to tell me. You don't need to raise your hand here. This is purely within you. But do you believe 
that there's more going on in this world than what we can see. Because if you do, it's going to change how you handle when you are encountering situations where you feel stuck massively. Bible or scripture? I just read out of, I just read out of, out of scripture, out of 2 Kings. Some of you are going, Bible can only be interpreted as metaphor or story. Some of you are going, absolutely not. It is literal. It is actually truth. And some of you go, I really don't know. Pay attention. Again, you're not going to offend me. You're not going to hurt me. I'm not, I'm not here to, to shove a, a belief down your throat, but I want you to just recognize that what you believe around Scripture, what you believe around God, what you believe around miracles and the supernatural will determine how you go through situations where you feel stuck, things that you feel impossible. Because here is something that is actually true. Faith, people who have faith, people who have an openness or receptivity to things that they can't quite understand yet or explain actually have additional tools available to them when they encounter difficult situations in their life. It's just a bigger toolbox. They have more options available to them. For those that struggle with this idea, for those who are wondering, can I even open up my, myself to this idea that there's more going on to this life than what I can see? If you're struggling with that, I'm going to tell you very clearly, very directly, continue to wrestle with that. Continue to struggle. Continue to ask as many questions as you need to. Okay? Ben will take all of your questions that you have about any of that. <laughs> He'll love to answer those. Just make an appointment and he will explain everything. Makes it easier. Thanks, Ben. The reason why I want you to struggle, the reason why I want you to wrestle, because as long as you're wrestling, you're still open. You're still trying to figure out what your belief system is, what your grid is. The minute it starts to solidify and you're going, I'm convinced of this and, and I'm convinced of that because of, again, your story, other people's experience, curses and blessings, all sorts of stuff, it starts to limit how you can move through some of these experiences. And I, want, I don't want you to get stuck. I have a really big toolbox at home with just fantastic tools. I, I, can, I can fix pretty much anything on my cars or around the house. I love my tools. I, just, I love Sears. I love shopping. I love Craigslist because you can find really good tools on Craigslist. Okay? Um, I want you to have as many tools as possible. <sighs> Hope and Hebrews 11. Here's another passage. This is a concept for some people that it's hard to get their minds wrapped around. Um, one of the things that I come across often is feeling stuck is often the same as feeling hopeless. I have no idea how it's going to change, and I've given up hope. I'm just, I have to settle into what I've got here. Stuck and hopelessness are very, very synonymous. And I, and I think it's worth a little bit of time actually looking at the concept of hope and how that actually plays out. Um, hope equals seeing something before it exists. 
Hope is believing something or seeing something before it exists. And some people, again, because of your grid, you're going, I'm not allowed to even consider that. I need rational, logical, experiential evidence. Okay? I need to know exactly how it works. And I want you to consider the idea that hope is actually one of the best tools to help get you unstuck. I'm going to read another passage. Okay, this is Hebrews 11. It's uh, amended in some ways. It's not the whole passage. I've gone through it in order and highlighted some things, which is, again, challenging for me personally, but also hopefully challenging for anyone who is feeling stuck and hopeless because it's, it's just, it rattles your brain when you actually try to, try to get your head wrapped around some of it. So, as I'm reading this, if you're actually going and falling into the category of scripture again, which is, it's just metaphor, I can't actually take it literally, do, a, do me a favor. See if you can, and again, no one's going to know what's happening within you. This is purely internal, okay? But see if you can open yourself up to go, what if this is actually true? What if there is some answers here that can genuinely affect change in my life? Okay? See if you can get into that state of mind. The fundamental fact of existence is that this trust in God, this faith, is a firm foundation under everything that makes life worth living. This is the message version, by the way. I I actually like the message in some of these, so that's a translation of Scripture. It's our handle on what we can't see. The act of faith is what distinguishes our ancestors. It's what set them above the crowd. By faith, we see the world called into existence by God's word. What we see created by what we don't see. Right there might just blow some of your mind. Because he's making an assumption that something, someone that you can't see spoke a word and the entire world comes into existence. By an act of faith, Enoch skipped death completely. They looked all over and couldn't find him because God had taken him. We know on the basis of reliable testimony that before he was taken, he pleased God. It's impossible to please God apart from faith. And why? Here's a key piece. Because anyone who wants to approach God must believe both that he exists, first caveat, and that he cares enough to respond to those who seek him. That might be paradigm bending for many of you. Anyone who wants to approach God must believe that he both exists and that he cares enough to respond to those who seek him. Imagine how that would affect if you're feeling stuck, if you're in a situation you don't like, and you know the person who created you actually cares about you. See how that's a different tool? That's a better tool for you to navigate that experience? By faith, and here's a whole list, by faith Noah built a ship in the middle of dry land. By an act of faith, Abraham said yes to God's call to travel to unknown place that would become his home. By faith, Sarah was able to become pregnant, old woman as she was at the time, because she believed in the one who made a promise, made a promise would do what he said. Each one of these people of faith died, not yet having in hand what was promised, but still believing. When I read that recently, it's like, holy cow, really? Really? Each one of these people of faith died not yet having in hand what was promised, but still believing. 
they never got what they wanted. Are we even allowed to say that as Americans? We don't always get what we want. Um, how did they do it? They saw it a way off in the distance. They waved their greeting to it and accepted the fact that they were transients in this world. They accept that this world isn't the only thing out there. People who live this way make it plain that they are looking for their future true home. If they were homesick for the old country, they could have gone back anytime they wanted, but they were after a far better country than that, a heavenly country. You can see why God is so proud of them and has a city waiting for them. By faith, Abraham, at the time of testing, offered Isaac back to God. By an act of faith, Isaac reached into the future as he blessed Jacob and Esau word blessed again last week, very intentionally spoke a blessing over his children. By an act of faith, Jacob on his deathbed blessed each of, his, each of Joseph's sons in turn, blessing them with God's blessing, not his own, as he bowed worshipfully upon his staff. By an act of faith, Joseph, while dying, prophesied the exodus of Israel and made argument, or arrangements for his own burial. By an act of faith, Moses' parents hid him away for three months after his birth. They saw the child's beauty and they braved the king's decree. By faith, Moses, when grown up, refused the privileges of Egypt, of the Egyptian royal house. He chose a hard life with God's people rather than an opportunistic, soft life of sin with the oppressors. He valued suffering in the Messiah's camp far greater than Egyptian wealth because he was looking ahead, anticipating the payoff. By an act of faith, he turned, on, he turned his heels on Egypt, indifferent to the king's blind rage. He had his eye on the one no one can see and kept right on going. There's that perspective again. He had his eye on the one that nobody could see and that kept him going. By an act of faith, he kept the Passover feast and sprinkled Passover blood on each house so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch them. By an act of faith, Israel walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. The Egyptians tried it and drowned. By faith, the Israelites marched around the walls of Jericho for seven days and the walls fell flat. By an act of faith, Rahab, the Jericho harlot, welcomed the spies and escaped the destruction that came on those who refused to trust God. I could go on and on, but I've run out of time. There are so many more. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephath, I can never say that name, David, Samuel, the prophets, through acts of faith, they toppled kingdoms, made justice work, took the promises for themselves. They were protected from lions, fires, and sword thrust. They turned disadvantage into advantage. Those people don't sound stuck, do they? And they were having some bad days. They won battles, routed alien armies. Women received their loved ones back from the dead. There were those who, under torture, refused to give in and go free, preferring something better, resurrection. Others braved abuse and whips, and yes, chains and dungeons. We have stories of those who were stoned, sawed in two, murdered in cold blood. Stories of vagrants wandering the earth in animal skins, homeless, friendless, powerless. The world didn't deserve them, making their way at best they could on the cruel edges of the world. Not one of these people, even though their lives of faith were exemplary, got their hands on what was promised. God had a better plan for us, that their faith and our faith would come together to make one complete whole, their, faith, their lives of faith not complete apart from ours. This is hard. I sit with people who are devastated, whose hearts are broken, 
and I'm supposed to look them in the eye and say, God has a better plan. And they go, I just hurt. Can't you make it better? And sometimes, sometimes I have to say I can't. And some of those people who struggle with the concept of faith, who struggle with the concept of God, who struggle with the concept of of trust, walk out of my office and they go, I don't feel better. I actually feel more stuck. And I don't actually have a tool because I don't have a magic word that takes it all away. I don't have a magic pill. I don't have a magic technique which makes their pain stop. For those clients that I that I sit with and my heart breaks for them. I want them to know, especially when they ask, here's another option. Here's another option that God, you might not be able to see everything that's going on, but when you can know that there is more going on, it actually helps you feel less stuck. Faith comes through practice. You don't just wake up one day and go, man, I have a lot more faith. This is fantastic. That was a good night's sleep. Doesn't happen. You actually have to practice. You have to try small steps over and over and over again. Trust comes through relationship. Man, this one I can't emphasize enough. You cannot trust someone unless you're in a relationship with them. You have to know them. You have to spend time with them. You have to build that relationship. And when you do, trust comes much, much easier. And then you have to give up the perception of control. What do I mean by perception of control? There are some things, this is the bad news of the, of the night. There's actually some things that you can't control. So we're going to talk about emotional CPR, which stands for control, power, and responsibility. When it comes to control, not everything can be changed. I'm going to say that again. In a series about being stuck, I'm going to be the guy who tells you some things actually can't be changed. If my wife gets hit by a bus and she's dead, no matter how much I want it to be different, I will not get my way. Sometimes I might lose a relationship because a person will not make amends with me, will not reconcile with me. Sometimes I've missed an opportunity. Again, a job or just an experience of some sort and it's never going to be repeated again. There are some things that just can't be changed. And when we come to understand that, when we come to accept that, it actually makes it much, much easier to sit in those times and go, this hurts, I don't like it, but I can actually move through it. I'm not actually going to get stuck in it. This lack of control, there's actually lots of boxes around that. Some people, when they're going, that's it, I can't stand it, I, I'm out of control, and so I just get pissed off about it. I'm going to get really angry about it, and I'm going to make sure everybody knows about it. 
So I'm going to, you know, do a little ranting and raving on, on, on Facebook. I'm going to, you know, blast out a tweet or a Twitter or whatever else. I'm just going to make sure everyone knows how angry I am about it. Some people just triggers that fear. Oh my gosh, I'm out of control and I have no idea what's going to happen. And, just, and you, get, you get sucked into that, sucked into that terrified place. Again, this is your grid. What do you do when you are out of control? Do you go to the fear place? Some people go, I got screwed, so I'm going to take as many people down as I can on the way down. I'm going to get even. I'm going to let that burn inside me. Those three cost you a lot. They cost unbelievable amounts of emotional energy, pain. It's exhausting to maintain revenge. Exhausting. It's exhausting to maintain fear, by the way. Terrifying. Or some people have learned, they developed the capacity to be gracious, to have gratitude, to be thankful. They're able to go, I have no idea what's going to happen, and instead of letting this ruin my life, I'm going to let's see what happens. And I'm thankful for this opportunity to learn, to grow, to change. And gratitude is a learned skill. You can practice it and get better at it over and over. I have several clients who, who keep gratitude journals. And every day, it's like, I'm going to get 10 things down. And it changes their emotional state. Even though their circumstances might not have changed at all, their perception changes. Some people go into a lack of control with an eternal perspective. Again, they have, a, they have a, that tool available to them that says, I have no idea what's happening right now. I am so thankful that God knows what's going on right now. And I'm going to let him play it out. Let's see what happens. Or, what's your box? How do you handle times when you are out of control? You might have something you put out, something else you put in there. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, I don't really know. I mean, is gratitude like a first reaction? Right. Um, her question was, don't you have to sometimes go through anger or go through some of these other things before you get to the bottom row? And the answer is, our humanity? Absolutely. I, this, isn't, this isn't about normal, healthy reactions to loss, to grief, to things like that. My wife dies. I'm not going to go, thank you, Lord. Yes. It's just not going to happen. I don't move to the gratitude place. I go to the, I'm angry at whoever hit her in the car. I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly sad, and I grieve, and I sit in that normal, natural, healthy, human emotional state. But again, just like you can be both anxious and depressed, you can still have an eternal perspective which goes, I miss my wife. I miss her. I miss that connection with her. And... I am so grateful. I'm so glad that I'm not in control of this world. I'm so glad that, that I know that she is at, at peace now, or she, her world's a lot better than my world right now. And, and you, can, you can sit in those highly conflicting emotions at the same time. This is, a, again, more about people get stuck in these things because they don't have other grids or other boxes in their grid to put it into. They're, they only know anger. So that's just their only tool available to them. Um, 
I want, I want people to be able to develop the bottom row. I want people to have more tools available to them. Yes? It seems like it goes, and this could just be my perspective, but anger to grief to acceptance. It feels like these feelings, these words in, in between. Right. Those are the things that help us to get from anger to gratitude. Like yep. still going through anger and yep. getting what you have. Yep. You're, you're, you're listing off, there's, again, there's probably three or four different versions of the grief cycle. Again, denial to anger to acceptance to bargaining. To, again, there's different models for that. The way I basically explain the grieving process real quick, again, because grieving is typically a lack of control. Something's happened and you can't change it. Um, I actually define it as really, 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 really wanting something that you're never going to get. Like what? Like really? Yep, like really. And when you can't get that, again, if my wife is killed, I'll never, I'll never get her back. I will never get what I want. And the grieving process is the natural physiological time frame it takes for me to go from one normal I get up every day, I see her. When I come home from work, I expect to see her. That's my normal. And it takes about 18 months to two years for me to come home, and I stop expecting to see her. I just know she's not going to be there. And this is a new normal. The grieving process is the time frame and kind of the, the waves. And again, it's not linear. You kind of circle through all of them for a while, and they have general kind of big sections. But moving from one normal to the next normal is, is what the grieving process is all about. Yes? Um, I find it helpful to find something that I truly and honestly can't control. Like, I might be really stressed out having a hard day, but I can go work out. Yep. I can go cook a healthy dinner instead of yep. um, eating a bag of potato chips. Or those, those little choices that are, yes. that are within my control. They are. Take one step from Correct. Um, and again, healthy coping mechanisms, I'll talk all day long about those. Those are really, really good. Um, I'll leave it at that. I could say more about that, but I'm going to just choose not to. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That phrase right there comes out of the end of Genesis from the story of Joseph. Again, one of my favorite stories in Scripture because he was having a bad time. His brothers hated him. Talk about out of control. Talk about being stuck. Sold into slavery, accused of, of, of rape and adultery, thrown into prison, forgotten for years. Brothers show up in Egypt, and he has the ability to move into this perspective, which goes, all of these things that happened, I now know why. I can see. I have the end of the story. And you guys meant it for evil. And they did. Imagine the, that client sitting in my office. Paul, I got a story to tell you. My brothers attempted to murder me. I need to learn how to reconcile with them. That's a, that's a tough job for any counselor. And to be able to move to a place that says, you guys meant it for evil. It's actually out of your hands. God meant it for good. When you have that capacity, do you see how he's not stuck anymore? Do you see how he goes, I can't change the past. I can't change what my brothers did. I can't change all the time I sat in the pokey um, waiting and being forgotten, being falsely accused. But it doesn't matter anymore because look, look where we're at. 
He what? Yeah, he kind of messed with them a little bit. Fair enough. Um, yeah, that's absolutely true. If you guys don't know the story, man, go and read it. It's just brilliant. Yes, ma'am. I have a question. How okay. Do you, how do you know when you should have more faith that yes. things are going to change and you need to just keep working on it or whatever? Yep. Or that... Yes. How do you know when to give up your perception of control and when do you know you need to live more by faith? Have faith or have more yes. Also known as when do you know to give up your dreams? Correct. Um, I actually call it Dead Horse Day. I call it Dead Horse Day. When you've been trying so hard and there's just you're absolutely getting nowhere with it, stop kicking the dead horse because it's not getting up. Right? Stop kicking the horse. How do you know when to do that? Um, I'm actually going to challenge your, your dichotomous thinking there for a second, okay? Um, because you're looking at faith as a tool primarily, and I'm going to suggest that faith, when it's integrated into your entire lifestyle, it, it, permeates, it permeates every situation, and it's not just something you pull out to fix this situation when nothing else is working, and over here you're, you're figuring out through responsibility and logic and reason and all stuff like that. Um, when we tend to, uh, the way I heard it phrased recently is um, when we pull out our faith or even our faith system so that we can get what we want, we're actually um, significantly conforming or, or tainting what that faith system is about. Instead, typically the way it works is this faith system affects how we live. We don't try to make our faith system um, get us what we want. We go, what does our faith system dictate onto our lives and how do I conform my life into that? And as you tend to balance that out in a, in a, in a fairly cohesive, comprehensive way throughout your, throughout your life, you actually end up with less of those, do I live by faith now or do I end up trying to fix this now? Um, because because you do both at the same time, you, um, you're able to go, I now confidently can say I have done everything that is within my reasonable amount of control and power. Again, just logically. That's why God, I think, it's, I think it's healthy to live by faith and use the brain that he's given us. And so when you just evaluate and go, I literally have no more options, that's when you go, all right. Those options, I was living by faith anyway, so now I'm going to have to let those things go, and I'm going to have to take this situation that's out of control and put it into another box, which is, I wonder what the eternal perspective is on that. I wonder how I can be thankful for this. I wonder how I can let this shape my life. Um, and and you, you very intentionally move it into a different box. Does that make sense? Sort of? Yeah. How do you know when to end a relationship or a job or thing? I mean, I don't know if that's what you were thinking. Right. I mean, it's anything. It's right. Like, how do you know when hope is something that you see something before it exists? Let's say fixing yeah. a relationship. Yeah. I have hope that I'm going to be able to fix it. Correct. But you've been working, working, working. You have faith that you're going to do the right thing. Or this is where I wish we lived in the Old Testament times more because there was something called the Uman and the Thuman or something like that. I can never say those words right. They were actually, they don't actually know what they were, but they lived in the breastplate of the priest who 
uh, at the temple, and they don't know if they were stones or sticks or things like this, but they actually um, would reveal the will of God. So scripture talks about David showing up, and he approached the priest, and he says, should I go to this city? And the priest says, hold on a second, let me find out. And he, he does whatever he does with the little stones or sticks, whatever, and the priest comes back and says, according to the things here, you shouldn't go to that city. So he avoided the city and, and saved his life. Wouldn't it be nice if God just showed up that way? We could just dial up and say, one for yes and two for no kind of thing. That would be helpful. God doesn't work that way anymore. God doesn't, doesn't tell us exactly what to do. Instead, he goes, I'm going to equip you with all of these good tools and use them. Use wisdom, use discretion, use cognitive reasoning, use consulting with friends, with people who are smarter than you, with people who are further down the road. And then, don't get stuck in the analysis paralysis. That's where people end up, again, it's that fear base of, I really know what I should be doing, and it still scares the crap out of me. And because I'm afraid of letting go. I call that the cliff dilemma. Weird to have all have names for these. But you're standing on the edge of the cliff. And you're going. When high school, I went cliff jumping with some friends. And it was about 40 feet up. That's a, that's a ways down there. It's really scary. And I can remember kind of doing one of these. And it's like, okay, I got to jump. I got to. And I can never really get going. And the group I was with, some of the girls who were doing it, they actually asked some of the guys. They said, we can't jump off. Will you push us? Okay. And so, you know, hey, look over there. <laughs> kind of off the cliff kind of thing. And, ah, into the water. It's much, much harder to step off the cliff. Give up that control. Give up what you know. And there's that blinding terror moment when, you've, when that center of mass, when your gravity, you step off and you know there's no way I'm getting back on that cliff. Oh, crap, what did I do? That moment right there is terrifying. Terrifying until you make the fall and you realize it's not going to kill you because the water is deep. Just don't hit the water with your arms out. I did that one time. Bruises all underneath my arms. Just a mess. Okay? I learned. You go in all bunched up. Some people like to be pushed, and they actually give up control on that. They go, I'm going to let my boss fire me rather than quit because I'm just going to get so tired I'm going to be a bad employee kind of thing. I go, why wait? If you know that it's not working, now be responsible. Probably don't quit your job until you have another one lined up. But that dreaming thing, I know what I want. I know a better job, better hours, better boss, better location, better benefits package. I know what I want. I now have found it. I'm going to be assertive and, and take that step. We'll talk, we'll talk some more about it here really quick. Everyone doing okay? Actually cranking through here, doing pretty good. Um... Power. So CPR, emotional CPR, control. We don't always have control. The things that we do have control over, do it. Power. Here is the one statement around power, okay? We choose our heart condition. Back to that circumstantial thing. People can lose their job, and depending upon their perspective, they can go, Man, I can't wait to see what happens. I'm terrified, I'm scared, I'm worried, but I'm really excited to see what happens. That's kind of being pushed off the cliff when, when they get fired. But I can, make this, I can make this a positive experience. Or 
going back to the other boxes in their grid, I got fired, it was unfair, I can't believe it, I'm going to demand justice, I'm going to sue, I'm going to do all this, and a lot of emotional energy gets stuck in that. We choose our heart condition. That's how you have all the power in the world. Again, guy who was much smarter than I, um, not, not Dietrich Bonhoeffer, um, the other guy. Not Franz Liszt, he's a music composer. Gosh, my brain's a little slow today. Um, nope, not C.S. Lewis, come on. Huh? Yes, Victor Frankl. Is that right? Anyway, concentration camp, loses his family, loses, loses, loses everything during the Nazis. And he's able to walk out of there. Actually, while he's there, he's able to go, they can take my food, they can take my comfort, they can take my family. They cannot. There's nothing that they can do to take my attitude. He gets to choose it. And he actually helps save dozens and dozens and dozens of people within the concentration camps because he was able to give them that power. And the Nazis thought they had all the power. And they had none. All they had to do is take away the physical comforts. And again, Frankel understood there's more to this life than just beds and food. That's real power. That's profound. And that same power is available to you and to me. I know some of you have horrible stories. You got pain. You got, you got things in your life which would make most of us cry, break our hearts. And you still have the power. Now, I could have written word, the word power at the top of one of these with three boxes underneath. And some of you would go, impossible. Some of you would go, dangerous. And some of you would, I have no idea. You have the power. You're allowed to believe that. You're allowed to dream about that. You have choice. You choose your heart condition. And nobody, nobody can take that from you. It's the best news of the night. It's, and it's not a complex not a complex concept. But do you believe it? Will you put it into practice? Control, power, right here, and responsibility. Responsibility looks like this. A lot of people, a lot of people go, here's now, here's where I'm at in life, and I want to move through life and eventually be happy. And for me to get to my happy place, everything has to line up on this, on this exactly the way that I have it planned out. So I gotta go to the right school. I gotta get into the right school program. I gotta get the right job. I gotta make the right amount of money. I gotta marry the right person. I gotta have the right relationship in my life. I gotta have my faith system work out for me. I gotta go to the right church. I better pick the right career, not just a temporary job early in school, but I gotta find my vocation. I gotta find my passion. If I don't find that, I gotta get the right friends in my life. I gotta get the right retirement in place. And if anything happens to kind of skew off of this, it's like, oh man, I picked the wrong marriage. I picked the wrong person. Or I got the wrong job early on. That limited me into where I'm at. Or, you know, I screwed up my retirement, I can't do that. That means I'm now unhappy. 
And so there's this fear, there's this terror of, I gotta, I gotta find the right way. There's only one right way, and there's this path. And happiness, I'll be happy if someday. And I got all of these things to get lined up. That's exhausting. That's tenuous. That's, 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 that's incredibly overwhelming. And I'm going to challenge you and say, I don't see life working that way. I've never seen life work that way. Instead, what it tends to look like is this. Here we are now. You and I can't tell the future. I have no crystal ball. You have no crystal ball. We have no idea what's going to happen. According to the newspapers right now, you know, next Tuesday the big one's coming. We're all going to fall into the ocean, and the end of the world's going to be here. Stock up on drinking water, okay? That's, that's one person's interpretation of the future. But all we know is right now there are a limited number of options before us. Let's pick three, okay? And out of those three... We have a decision. Which one do you want to pick? Should we pick the top one? Should we pick the middle one? Should we pick the bottom one? Because 20 years ago, I didn't have these options in front of me. I just wasn't in this place in life. Wasn't there. But now, currently, I have these three options. So let's pick one of them. And I, and I go to this option here, okay? Option three. Once I'm there, I have a limited amount of options available to me that I don't have if I would have picked one or two. I just don't. And so let's say I, st I sit on, this, on this, um, this place for a while. I live there for two, three, five years or so. And then it's like, okay, here's these options before me. Let's pick one of them. And now I got more options available to me. And let's pick one of those. And there's three more options or four more options or two more options or nine more options. And let's pick one of those. And life tends to meander all through here because Again, I have no idea what options in life I'm going to be facing when I'm 60 years old. I want to be cool to find out. I can't wait to see. The decisions that are facing me right now in life, I never imagined that I'd be facing those right now. Just never. And so it's like, all right, I'm just going to have to deal with what I got in front of me right now. And one more time. And so we end up who knows where. That's pretty much how life tends to go. When you do that, you don't have to wait to be happy. You don't have to say, I'll get all these things and now, finally, I'm happy. I've got three years to go or, man, all of a sudden cancer hits or all of a sudden something else hits and I lose all this happiness again. Okay? Instead, you can go to any one of these any one of these dots right here, and you can go, how can I be content in this moment right now? How can I be responsible with the options I have before me in this moment? I don't know how it's going to play out, but I'm going to take, I'm going to make the best decision I can with the information I have at the time. And I'm going to pick this one over here, and let's do that one right there. And here's what's really neat, too, by the way. You say you pick this one right here, and you go, wow, that really stinks. I don't like these options that, that I have. You're allowed to rewind. You can go back to here sometimes. Again, sometimes you can't. There might be just completely missed opportunities. But oftentimes you can go, you know what? I, I want a do-over, please. And a lot of times you can. You can go, man, let's try something different. And so you try you know, this option down here, and a whole different set of things open up before you. Responsibility is expecting the best of yourself and then doing what is necessary to make it a reality. That's responsibility. 
Expect the best of yourself. That's that dreaming thing again that I talked about. That's that box that a lot of people are afraid to, to open up in their life. But I want you to expect the best. And then don't you dare sit back and just hope it all happens. You gotta work. You gotta do something. You gotta try. You might hear this theme throughout everything I'm talking about. There's this experiential component. There's this active component to getting unstuck. And again, some people don't like that. They just want to go, I just want to stop feeling the way I'm feeling, but I'm, a, I'm afraid to actually do something. It's your son who, who isn't taking responsibility for himself, and you've been floating him financially, or he's been crashing your basement. And it's like, I really want him to get better. It might be time to go, son. You've got three months, okay? On this date, whether you have a job or not, you're going to be moving out. It's been nice having you. 32 years is enough. <laughs> Go away. Okay? You have to do something. It's sitting down and talking with your spouse and going, I haven't been honest with you, but this is an area of our marriage which is troubling me or concerning me, and I want to let you know. I'm not giving up on it, but unless we do something about it, it's never going to change. And so I'm going to risk hurting your feelings. I'm going to risk challenging you. I'm going to risk offending you. Let's, let's do something about this. It's, it's submitting yourself to people that you know, and you're going, I'm struggling with this. Can you tell me what's going on? Can you tell me if I'm doing something that's offending you guys? And they go, thank you so much for being open. Yes, you're doing some things which are actually problematic, and you can change those things. That's responsibility. We're not going to get it right the first time. We're not going to be perfect, but we actually start to change. We get unstuck. We do that by building different boxes. We're allowed to dream. We're allowed to not know the how, but dream anyway. The how will show up. You'll figure it out. It's fascinating when that happens, by the way. It's really cool. Okay, man. Thoughts or questions? Concerns? Yes? Obey and leave the results to God. That's actually pretty accurate. That's, that's very accurate. Charles Stanley, I said. Chuck Stanley. Good guy. Yeah, but I just I thought that was pretty good. Yeah. And I covered it right there. Obey and leave the results to God because if you're doing what's right, then whatever happens meant to happen. So yep. you, you know, and, and you don't have to feel guilty about it. It takes responsibility off of you. Right. Here, here's the challenging part of that. And I know this is true because it's personal in my life. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I know what I need to do and that fear kicks in. Again, fear of like, what are people going to say? What am I going to risk? I have to give up something I know, stepping off that cliff intentionally. And it's like, man, is God actually going to show up? Is this going to turn out for the better? Or is this going to turn out for the worse? Because I don't like pain. Okay? Some of you might actually, you know, really enjoy being uncomfortable and painful in your life, but I don't like it. So it's hard to actually put that obedience into action. Anyone else? Yes? So you mentioned a few, like, kind of bigger things, job loss, loss of a wife, yep. those kinds of things. Um, I would consider those maybe more on the catastrophic, catastrophic. catastrophic side. Yes. And, and I think, like, so a couple months ago, I lost my job. So lost as job. a result of that, I'm discouraged. Yes. Um, I have some just, like, value kinds of things going on. I feel worthless. Yes. Kind of 
Yes. Um, and then on the weekend, uh, my wife will say something like, you know, why didn't you wash the dishes or, you know, something minor. Yes. And that minor thing instantly triggers that yes. of worthlessness. Yes. And I want to, my initial gut reaction is to say, well, because I suck. Yes. You know, or something like that. Yeah. Like, where is, where's that? I Man. Again, thank you so much. I wish I, I wish I could say that I planted some of these questions, but what you're just describing there is, um, exactly what we're going to be talking about next week, which is a state change. An experience creates a certain state of mind or even a physiological state. And when you view the world through that state, um, everything is tainted. And the skills or the ability to change your physiological state now changes your perspective and therefore your options that are available to you. And a lot of people, again, accept their state as, this is how it's going to be forever, and I'm stuck here, and I'm never going to change. And that's why one of those boxes up there said, this sucks. And you get to turn to your wife and go, I know you don't mean it, and I know that it's just the dishes, but right now where I'm at, this has bumped up against my, my complete level of worth and value, and my cognitive rational brain is telling me it's just dishes, and I know that I'm more than the, the pile of dishes on the sink, but man, the state of mind I'm in right now has got me rattled. And your wife can come alongside you and go, I'm so sorry that, that there's that sensitivity, that wound that is still open and it hurts that way, and you can use the dishes as an opportunity to create intimacy, to create, to create even um, stronger bonds between the two of you, because she can go, I, I wish I could pull you out of this, and I can't, so I'm just going to sit in it with you. And you redeem that state of mind and those dishes all, all at the same time. But next week, don't miss next week, by the way. We're going to have so much fun. We're going <laughs> to actively change your state over and over and over. It's going to be a roller coaster like you can't believe. I have been looking forward, looking forward to next week. So bring your crash helmets, okay? <laughs> bring your hip waders, and we're going to see what we can do. It's just going to be a blast. Yes? Could you uh, clarify what you mean by the bad Yep, that's always a good sign when you label the evening the banister effect and someone goes, I don't know what, that, what you're talking about still. <laughs> that's, that's very good teaching, okay? It's one of those that I get, go back to afterwards and go, okay, I might have missed that mark. The banister effect, Roger, Roger Bannister, um, up until that time, was actually believed that the human body could not run faster than the four-minute mile. There was a physical limitation, and Roger Bannister had the capacity. His boxes, his grid said, I know I can beat this. And so he tried over and over and over again. He put a team together, and he was actually able to do something which everyone thought was near impossible. Since he has done that, do you know what the world record is right now? I don't know if you're here the first week. Yeah. 3.43, 17 seconds faster. But it took one guy to break it, and now 20,000 plus people have, are running faster than that. And it's because his boxes, his grid, didn't take the didn't take something that said this isn't possible, and and put it into the. So I'm not even going to try. He put it into the. Wow, I'm really dang close. I'm I'm gonna. I know I can make this happen. So four minute mile, his box was it's a goal, and so, so. The banister effect is there's some things in our lives that when we don't have a box for it, we put it into the impossible thing, and we don't devote the energy 
uh, we limit ourselves because we don't devote the energy to actually being able to, to um, find a solution to it. Yes, that's great. Yep. So the question was, how do you combat, combat that inner voice which says you're not allowed to dream, right? You're not going to like the answer. You said you wanted to take people and just shake them. And yeah. Them, um, yeah. I could yell at you and shame you, and that could work too, so it's now an external voice, which is, you know, reinforcing the internal voice. Um, the fact that you're aware of it right now, the fact that you can hear you, that, that conflict inside, that incongruence inside, is the first level, which now says, there it is again, there's that voice again, and I actually don't believe my feelings. Ooh, how about that? Okay? Well, you're allowed to say, this feeling, this perception somehow is tainted or skewed, and so I'm actively going to fight it. The way to do that is to literally get it outside your head, and so you can talk out loud, even better, talk to another human being. So you show up with someone next to you, and you go, right now, you know, you call them up. I really want to start dreaming, and right now, the voice says I'm not allowed to. Am I allowed to dream? You actually ask them. You get an external perspective. Okay? And when your friend knows you're working on this, they can go, tell me what you want to dream about. And when you, when you do it, and you do it long enough, and with enough emotional intensity behind it, that was the first week in the series, because the emotional intensity around you're not allowed to dream is actually stronger than the emotional intensity around you are allowed to dream. So you actually have to do it more and more till, that, till you balance out the emotional intensity, and you go, you know what, even if I'm breaking every rule that my family has laid down for me, that's it. I'm sick and tired of that, and I want a better job. I want to live in a better place. I'm sick and tired of where I'm living. You almost have to get mad at it. That's an emotional intensity. Do you see the emotional energy behind that? And when you do that, and you do that enough, you, those internal voices, you'll... Again, I, I use the analogy of the radios. I don't know if you'll ever be able to turn the radio off. This is old radio with these old scripts. I think you can turn it down, and you have a new radio that you turn up, because this is a much better radio station, much better message, much better, um, much more enjoyable music kind of thing. And on good days, you're enjoying this. On bad days, you get triggered in some way. This old stuff will kind of creep up. The, old stuff, the new stuff might turn down. Sometimes that'll be just as loud as the old stuff, and... and, and and again, I don't actually know if there's an off switch for the old one, because I think sometimes it's just hardwired into our early childhood experiences, but you absolutely can turn that radio down and have long periods of time where that old message, those old fears don't show up. But it requires active, that theme again, the experience. You have to do something about it. You have to be willing to be bad, bad in front of somebody else. And that's terrifying for some people. But man, does it work. It really works good. Does that make sense? All right. Stop asking questions. Let's go away. Thanks for listening to this podcast. 
If you'd like more information, please visit paulelmore.com.